Hey guys, it's Hannah, introing this episode of Correspondence to say that the first 15 minutes of the episode can also be found on YouTube, where my guest is speaking through a puppet. So check out the video over there if you're so inclined. I just wanted to throw that explanation up in case there are any puppet references in the podcast, which starts right now. I'm very excited today to be talking with Adam P. Nave, who is a writer, a co-writer, and an editor. So you do lots of things. I do. I, um, I kind of do everything. Makes you very versatile, right? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've dabbled in publishing, and by dabbled, I mean lost a lot of money. But uh, <laughs> so I just stick to the writing and editing these days. I was looking at your website. It says you're originally from New York City. What brought you out to the West Coast? Uh, friends, money. It was just time to move. One of the things I always believed in New York was once you, the city changes every five to seven years. And once you realize you're not falling back in love with it, it's time to go. Mm. What is the process like of falling back in love with a city? I mean, every city has a feel, right? Like Portland, you know what Portland feels like. Imagine most of that neighborhood by neighborhood changed every five or seven years. And so it's just one of those things. So eventually, at least for me, it became, yeah, I'm not into it. Like it's not my town anymore. You have to kind of like grow with it, like a relationship almost. Okay. Well, we're glad to have you out here on the West Coast. Um, I'm assuming, you know, you've got, you've been in the writing business for for quite a while. How and when did you realize that you wanted to be a writer? Well, both my parents are in publishing. So when I first went off to college and was going to major in physics, I almost got disowned. Um. I think it usually goes the other way, right? Right. No, for most, for most of humanity, it goes the other way. Um, And, you know, the, the physics thing didn't work out, but I ended up working in computers and slowly just started writing. Like I never intended to do it. You know, I, I was rebelling, um, but it just sort of happened because I'd been surrounded by it my entire life. What kind of publishing uh, did your parents do? Like, were they in fiction, nonfiction? My father wrote science fiction. My mother um, wrote and edited mostly like business stuff and, and political science books. Okay, so even in their relationship, they kind of did very different types of publishing and writing. Yeah, it turns out actually like my grandparents on I think both sides were actually in printing, like, you know, putting in little metal things to actually print books. (laughs) That's amazing. So they were doing like the the lettering and stuff on the typeset. Like actual letterpress stuff. Um, So when you were in college and like starting to realize that you were more interested in writing what were you writing back then garbage um i've actually been lucky enough to twice in my life lose everything i've ever written and most people make that exact horrified face i understand but it is so incredibly freeing because i i don't like i have dim memories of stuff i wrote when i was a kid but i couldn't prove any of it like i think there's one story when i was like nine six six that, you know, I, I wrote with, like, crayon that I think is still around somewhere. But otherwise, everything is lost. And so when I, you know, because I, I took a big break from, like, the college days of maybe I want to write and failed horribly, like most people do. And so when I came back to it, I had nothing. So it really forced me just to start fresh and not worry about, well, I used to do this. Maybe I could just refine this thing or 
now. Now I got a complete fresh start. That's really interesting, especially for someone like me, because I, I basically hoard everything I've ever written in my entire life. And I'll stumble upon it when I'm trying to like do a great clean out of my room or something and be like, oh, this is terrible, but I'm going to keep it anyway. And then I just put it in a binder and I'm probably not going to look at it for the next 20 years. Sure. I mean, I, I've been selling fiction for about 15 years now, and I have every scrap of everything since then. And I still use it in bones of things here and there. But it's just much earlier than that. Really, I was writing garbage. I mean, that's your job when you're younger is to write really terrible things to get it out of your system. Did you ever get discouraged? Because like, I, I haven't published any long form fiction or any, anything in book form. Did you ever get discouraged with the early writings and think, mm, maybe I should just stop pursuing this and go back to physics? Oh yeah, I mean, there, I mentioned there was a break. There was like an eight year break where I wrote nothing because my father sold his first story when he was 13. <gasps> No Imagine pressure. living up to that. Right. So when I turned 18 and hadn't sold anything, I was like, well, I guess this isn't for me. And just stopped cold. Um, for Very unrealistic years. expectations. You're like, oh, my dad did it by 13. I've got to do it by 12 or I'm just not going right. to cut it. Oh, I had my first rejection letter at 12. Oh, well. Because let me tell you, you that I tried that. Um, again, I highly recommend that, though, because you, I am immune to rejection letters. <laughs> That's what I always hear. But as a 12-year-old, like, who... Who were you submitting writing to that they were rejecting you? Uh, it was an anthology that my father was going to be in. And we were at a con and I met the editor and he was like, and I, of course, was a 12 year old kid. And so I was, oh, I, I could do this. I'll, I'll write a story. And he said, sure. And then promptly rejected it for being terrible. <laughs> um, and he was right. I'm quite sure. But it was exactly what needed to happen because, you know, you get that crushing kind of like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm a failure. But then you learn to look, the sun comes up the next day. Yeah, the world didn't so end. I've had literal decades of I know what that feeling is, and it doesn't stop me. Who were some of your early influences when you were writing, even as early as when you were 12 or 13? Oof. Um, keep in mind, most of these are, you know, it's one of those things of, and I always go into this kind of with some trepidation because some of them are things that you look back at and you go, oh, oh, there's a problematic human being I really don't ever want to revisit. Um, so speaking of Heinlein, you know, <laughs> well, I, I was going for, for Heinlein, but sure. Um, I mean, most of my prose is actually built on Mickey Spillane stuff, believe it or not. And really? if you want to trash human being, there you go. Like, I used to make the excuse myself, because you, know, you have to when you're a certain age of, you know, well, it was, it was the 50s. It was, that was just the way it was. He wrote a novel in the 90s it had not gotten better. Oh. And that's when you just go, okay, like I, I can take the lessons I need from this, but yikes. Um, so is it fair to say then that you're in the camp of, you know, love the art, not the artist? When you can, I don't think you can actually separate them. It's more love what it does for you rather than the art. Mm. You know, I can still read Spillane, but only on a technical level. Um, I get that. But yeah, outside of that, it was a lot of Twain and, weirdly enough, Storm Constantine. What does Storm Constantine do? She's a British author. Um, if you know Vampire the Masquerade, the role-playing game? Okay. They actually, she had to sue them. They based a lot of that on on some of her fiction. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
she wrote this series of what was originally three and has expanded over the decades, Lord knows, but originally three uh, kind of dystopian, very queer fantasy novels that were just, you know, she's British and there were just nothing I'd ever seen before. So you were reading that in like your teens then? Yeah, when it first came, which she's horrified by, because I actually have since met her and, and we've become friends and she's kind of always horrified by the like, oh, I started reading you and I was like, uh, you know, a teen. <laughs> I feel like every every writer has that author though that they read at an obscenely early age when you totally shouldn't have and you look back and you're like how did my parents let me get this book right I mean well with my parents it didn't matter what it was it was a book it was fine oh they were very liberal about it yeah I could see that being in the industry yeah it was one of those like I think it was the broken idea of you know get used to it like sometimes books are terrible and they will do bad things to you. So learn that now and you'll be fine. Did your parents make you read anything? Because I know like growing up, my mom always tried to make me read more nonfiction or more like quote unquote serious books. Did your parents do that to you or did they just let you read one? Never, whatever? never. I mean, my father was a big history buff um, and a big religion buff. Like he wasn't religious, but I, I remember because they actually sent me to a Catholic school, which is a great way to draw religion out of somebody. Um, but at one point, you know, I was like eight. Keep in mind, I was maybe eight. And I was like, you know, I don't really know if any of this makes sense. And he's like, he just took me to a shelf of like every religious text you could ever imagine, like including Scientology, like everything. And I was like, I don't know, we'll figure it out. Like, go for it. So it was never a push to read a certain thing. It was more, don't be afraid to read anything. I like that as a philosophy. And it seems like it probably worked out for you. You seem like you're pretty pretty well read across the spectrum. I mean, you mentioned Twain plus fantasy and stuff like that. So you're you're across the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do it with music too. Like I've had that moment of checking out at a bookstore or music store and, and people always go, oh, do we need any of this gift wrapped? Like are these gifts? I'm like, they're all for me. Just, <laughs> just deal with it. The person just looks at you like, oh my gosh, how are you getting like Danish death metal and pop? Yeah, those aren't that dissimilar. Um, I remember once in Boston, actually, I bought some Mozart, some Twain, some like heavy metal thing I couldn't recall now, and some like 80s pop. And I really did get the like, which of these is a gift? <laughs> I mean, I none think it's a fair question. Um, do you listen to music while you're writing? Constantly. Do do you prefer like one genre? I know a lot of writers who who only listen to things without lyrics, so like instrumental when they're writing. Does it matter I, for you? Well, I, I've noticed a lot of people do soundtracks, and that drives me nuts because that's a soundtrack to a scene that's already been written. If I wanted to write that scene, I could just go watch it. I'm not going to get paid for it. Um, no, I, I, I make attacked right now. I totally listen to. Oh, hey, hey, if it works for you, that's great. Just for my head, it keys wrong. Um, for me, I make playlists. And when I say playlists, I mean, I, I'm a music nerd. Keep that in mind. Like everything I plot via sound. Um, like music has certain shapes in it and I'll use those for plotting. So I still believe in physical media and, you know, I mean, I digitize it all, but I still buy CDs. Um, and when I say I make a playlist for like a novel, I'm talking it's eight or 12 hours long. Wow. So it's just whatever the sound of that book is at whatever point ends up in there. And I will listen to nothing else every time I go to plot or write or edit that book. 
until it's kind of weird brain training because it gets to the point where I can turn on that playlist and I'm in that story. That's awesome. Do you make the playlist before you even start writing one word of the novel or do you kind of outline the novel and then pick the music that you think is going to correspond with the plotting? Actual writing is is kind of the last step of any book. So, you know, no, when I'm plotting, when I'm trying to figure out the sound, again, because I, I, because I do kind of plot by sound, which I know sounds weird. Um, but because I do that, I will actually spend days before I'm even actually plotting, finding the sound of the thing. That's really cool. So by the time you get to the actual writing then, do you, are you pretty fast? It depends on the week. I, I have, this actually was really funny in another interview years ago. Um, I have a day job on purpose because it lets me say no. You know, this, this isn't what I do for, to pay my mortgage. So I could say no to anything I want. I get to just work on projects I want to work on. That's awesome. That's probably but, very liberating. Oh, it is. But it also means that I never get to stop working because I have a full-time job. What's your and day then job? I'm working on I'm like, I, I work in computers um, back on the Perfect. East Coast, oddly enough, still. Oh, nice. But it means that I have like a full-time job. And then like right now I have a novel due and I'm working on a graphic novel and like four other pitches and I have two editing clients. So I will work like 12 to 18 hour days a lot. Jeez. But it's all by choice because again, I get to say no, right? Like the freedom has a price and I'm willing to pay it. Would um, you would you like to go full-time writing or do you do you just prefer the economic freedom to pick your I, own projects? I, I prefer the economic freedom at least. I mean, I have for the last like 15 years. It's it is so nice to know that like I can work on a novel that like no one really wants and it might sell terribly but my publisher believes in it and I believe in it and it doesn't matter you know yeah, it, that's it, like very um a very pure form of art I think I guess I I always maintain like I if I ever make art it's by accident so what do you make now I mean you, you've well, probably uh, graduated my job is to entertain artist, right? Like that, that's it. My job is just to entertain. If, if it happens to be art in someone's eyes, that's great for them, but I'm just here to entertain people. I know you talked about your, your process with novels, um, but you also do a lot of comics and I'm kind of a, a newbie to comics. And I'm curious about what the process there is. Like, how do you make sure you as the writer are on the same page with the illustrator? Do you do the writing first? Do you plot it, it out with them? Usually it's, and, and because a lot of my comic stuff involves a co-writer, but it is a lot of, you know, the, the artist is your co-creator. So we'll usually go back in our cave and come up with some ideas and we'll get designs back off of that. And then those designs often spur other ideas. And then we'll go off in our cave and start plotting and, and you know, doing first pass of things, but we pass it by the artist at every step. Okay. for approval, for any other ideas, for what their thoughts are, so that it's, you know, just like they will with the art, that, you know, they pass that all back to us, so we can go like, well, have you considered this? So it's really collaborative, which is great, um, but I can be a complete, like, selfish, you know, creative, like, control freak, which is why I also still write novels. So you co-write the comics a lot. Novels yeah. are purely yours. Right. And there are comics that I also do by myself, but a lot of my comics work has been co-written. Hmm. I mean, 
that sort of makes, I would think it would be really hard for me to co-write with anybody because I'm kind of like that. I'm kind of a control freak. I have to be responsible for everything in it. Right. So then even if it goes poorly, it's still just my fault. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that comics lets, like I like the idea of co-writing, I always have, and I never could do it with prose. But comics, again, it's already collaborative. Like you're, I'm already having to, and I say having to, it sounds like I resent it and I don't at all, but I'm already bouncing things off of other people. I'm already getting their input. So what's another voice in the room with the writing? Right. And realistically, I only at this point, and I mostly only ever have a curtain with one person. As and, in one person per project or as like- No, one no just, just on me and DJ Kirkbride just kind of, we co-write together and that's about it. Okay. He doesn't like it when you, I mention- uh, Oh, well, see, I just say he doesn't like it when I mention co-writing with other people. He feels like I'm cheating on him. Um, <laughs> we, good Lord, there was an old magazine, uh, Too Much Coffee magazine. If you know Shannon Wheeler and Too Much Coffee Man and all this, he had a magazine for a few minutes. And I ended up on the staff of it somehow as a writer. And DJ came in to write for it. And I don't like, we, we've, we argue about this to this day. Um, which one of us approached the other about like, maybe we should work on something together. But we were working on something for what was going to be his first issue. And then the magazine got canceled before it ever saw print. So he was never technically in the magazine, which is hysterical. Um, <laughs> but we, you know, liked each other as people and we found out we could do that. And so we were both running various websites for a couple of years there and we were trading bits back and forth. And then he got a gig um, helping edit the Popkin anthology for Image. Oh, that's cool. And when he moved up from assistant editor to editor, he called me and was like, would you like a terrible job? And I said, sure, what does it entail? Um, because that's how we operate. And suddenly I was making comics, which who knew? So you hadn't done any comic work before that point? Not realistically. I'd always, I mean, my father read comics. I grew up reading comics as well. And I always liked them, but they always seemed like this magical thing that, you know, I don't know how that happens there's art involved as well as writing like how does that even work um but again thanks to you know my mother being an editor i was actually a trained editor and i am a process junkie so i had taken apart how comics work so i was able to kind of come in and start editing comics and from there very quickly we started writing them together oh that's awesome what i mean i'm assuming you're two creative type people do you have disagreements? What are your different oh, ways of approaching things? Oh, we have, it, the first few years of working together, there used to be like serious fights. It, it's like any relationship, right? Except it's weirdly high stakes. Um, it's like you meet someone and like the next day you're about to get married and you have to figure out the wedding. That's kind of <laughs> how that works. So I, we, we used to disagree a lot and we still have our moments. Um, you know, I am very quick to reject any idea if I don't give it like 10 extra minutes to sit. Like my first gut reaction is always just to say no while my brain stalls trying to figure out things. And he's very used to that. Um, and he forgets things until like 15 minutes before. Like he, he'll have an idea and he'll be like, oh, I forgot to mention this until it's almost too late. But I'm used to that. Like that's, you know, we have these patterns like anyone that, that you get used to over. We've been working together for 10 years now. So nowadays it's just it's what we do we don't think about it we just make it happen yeah so you've gotten used to each other's uh yeah. workflows and can anticipate it yeah when he first got married i i met his wife and introduced myself as his other wife <laughs> because i think i like 
well, I mean, now I'm pretty sure I don't, but there was a time there. I know when they were dating, I talked to him more than she did. I'll bet she loved that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's gotten used to me. Um, I mean, she's great. That's the thing, right? But it, we are basically family at this point. We talk, I was talking to him last night, we, you know, just because we're always working on something. And even if we're not, it's good to keep in touch. Right, right. So you mentioned um, you're still working on several projects now, editing, writing, yep. all of the above. How do you, I mean, with a full-time job, how do you make time for this? Well, you know how most people have lives? <laughs> you don't? No. Um, like pre-pandemic, like I live alone and pre-pandemic, I would see other human beings maybe twice a week for like, you know, like go have like a drink on the patio or maybe go out for dinner type of thing, you know, and, and I like to cook a lot, but I only know how to cook for like six people. <laughs> so I have to invite a whole bunch of people over to eat. Um, but yeah, that's about it. Like, otherwise I just don't do anything other than work. And I like it. I mean, the thing is, I, I love doing the work. So there's no downside for me. So have, have you been more productive during the pandemic then? Oh, Lord, no. Can anyone really think straight? I have I a novel I was supposed to start in March. That hasn't happened yet. Oh, um, <laughs> Eight months later. Yeah. I, my publisher is fine with it. Like, they... they everyone understands right now and it's, it's not like everything is i had a book actually come out in march which of Yay. course promptly died because no one cares right now and i don't blame them so we're kind of looking at it as like you know push the the new one back a little bit and like next year act like that book just came out we're just gonna I just that. pretend I think that'll work i you know it's not gonna work worse yeah so yeah, I mean, I, I see 2020 is just the year that never was, basically. Right. Yeah, I think I, that's the, really interesting, though. Um, I, I think that's been pretty consistent with people I've talked to. Nobody has been more productive during the pandemic, even though early on we were like, hey, we all have to stay home. Let's do all those projects we've been waiting on and putting off. And then nobody did it because you're just like emotionally exhausted. Right. No, I knew. I knew. I, I, everyone around me was just like, oh, we're gonna, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to learn how to do this. I'm going to do all these projects. I'll finally write that novel. And I was like, cool. I'm going to go stare at a wall for three months. <laughs> Why did you know it was going to be that way? Because I live alone and I don't see people. Like, <laughs> I understand what that does to people's brains at first. I'm very used to it. You know, I, my day job, I work from home. The writing stuff, I work from home. But it is very destructive when you first started if you're not careful. So I knew that those first like six months at least of that is just, it's shell shock. And it was going to be worse because you couldn't even go anywhere or do anything. So like it could only get worse for most people. I knew it was going to be damaging for me and I'm already halfway there. Right. So, I mean, most, you know, normal sane people, it was, I, no way are you getting stuff done. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was honestly surprised because I'm very much an introvert and was like, oh, I pretty much don't do anything anyway. Like this is going to be fine. But I didn't realize that actually I do more than I thought. Mm -hmm. So in the first couple of months when I wasn't seeing coworkers, because I started working from home, I wasn't seeing any of my friends because there was nowhere to meet anybody. Right. I was just like, oh, this is way lonelier than I expected. Yeah. I mean, again, like you, you make strategies, you learn how to deal with it. Um, and some people have a harder road than that than others, of course. But yeah, it was never going to be like this bright, shiny, easy thing. 
I, I feel like my introvert powers have sadly grown, which is not good. Because <laughs> these days, like, even, like, you know, nicely distance on my patio, people are like, yeah, maybe I could come by. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Other humans, like, eh, <laughs> maybe next week. <laughs> Do you, are you the kind of introvert who has to, like, plan things way out in advance? Like, there's no spontaneous stopping by. No, I actually, I appreciate spontaneous stopping by. My life doesn't allow for it a lot of times because of the amount of work I have to do. You know, I have to, like, my deadlines have to be vigorously planned out in order not to fall over. And so I, I always have a little bit of leeway. Like, I've, I've learned over the years to, like, plan for the occasional spur of the moment. Like, I cannot focus tonight. I am going to, you know, go do something else. But there's only so much wiggle room there. Otherwise, it's just like a stack of dominoes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I have had days like that. I have had weeks like that where I suddenly find myself literally working 20 hours a day for like a week. It's not fun and you don't get the best work of your life out of it. Dang. Um, do you work with the same publisher all of the time? Um, with the comic stuff, no. Uh, we work with whoever is the best fit who you know, wants what we're selling. The pro stuff, the last bunch of years, yeah, I've just been working with this little small publisher up in Canada, of all places. Um, wow. Because, well, I sold my first book to him because he was saying that he wasn't going to be doing prose fiction anymore. And he was done with it. And he was visiting New York at the time. We'd been friends for a few years. I worked with him reviewing books for a website he was running. And I told him, that's great. And, you know, when you're in New York, let's go to my favorite bar. And I told the bartenders there, poor heavy, I need to get him drunk and sell a book. And he sat down, I told him, I'm going to get you drunk and I'm going to sell you a book. And he said, let's do it. And sure enough, he bought the book and I called him the next day and I'm like, look, now that you're sober, you get a free pass on this if you want to say no. Like, that was, I mean, it was intentionally not cool of me to do that, but I, I gave you a warning. He's like, oh no, like we're, we're doing the book. And we've been working together ever since. Oh, that's awesome. That seems like such a a different way to connect with a publisher than most like when you read it online about how different authors got published it seems very like cold and transactional well there's the large publishing is it has to be it, it's large and corporate and part of the reason that i like being able to pick my projects is like actually for right now still happily stay with small press because it gives me way more control i mean way less money but way more control and because i don't have to care about the money i can happily take the control but it also means that, like, I know the guy running the joint. Yeah, I think that seems like the preferable artist relationship, as yeah. long as you don't have to worry about the money. Right. Um, and then, I mean, you seem to dabble in a lot of genres as well as styles, obviously. Is there something you're still hoping to try? Ooh, so many things. So <laughs> many, many things. So many things. I, I, I mean... I, I haven't met a genre yet that I'm like against, you know, in yeah, either comics even like or humor, It looked like there was a little bit of like horror or something. I got started actually selling horror prose. Yeah. By oh, accident. Wow. Um, I, I mentioned I had stopped writing and I had a friend who was, and actually still is a writer who was like, you really need to start doing this again. And I, you know, we fought on and off for about a year. And she told me, look, I know this guy, he's putting together this horror anthology. Just please do me a favor and submit something. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to sink this ship. I'm going to just write a story about like three, four hours. I'm going to send it off. I'm going to get the rejection. I can just not have to deal with this again. Sent it off, sold the story. <sighs> was a little annoyed. 
annoyed. Well, because then it meant it was like, well, now I can't just avoid this. Now I have to get back into this. <laughs> and, you know, promptly started like setting weird like goals for myself that I realized I couldn't hit and then kept hitting them. Which, again, was obnoxious. I just kept trying to like figure out like how can I fail to not do this. Um, but yeah, I, I did a lot of horror, which was a great way back into prose for me because I don't like horror. Really? So there's no pressure. Again, it, it's like the money thing. There's no pressure. I can't, like science fiction, my father wrote it. I grew up steeped in it. So if you show me a piece of science fiction, I can go like, well, okay, well, obviously this scene here was, you know, my, at least mildly influenced by this book from 1952. You show me a horror thing, I have no clue. So there's complete free reign for me. That makes sense in a way. Yeah, you know, as long as you like approach it with respect, you don't need the institutional knowledge. How, I mean, you mentioned how you can read things technically. Yeah. Did you do that for horror? Did you try to read other people's work then to, to work your way into it? Or did you just go in completely blind? I went in completely blind. I, I was just like, you know what? I, I mean, I've seen horror movies. I've read some horror fiction. Who hasn't? You know, I get the concept of scary. And after that, it, it, there's a thing I call genre math, which is, it, it, I mean, every genre has, there are certain tropes and they're not bad things, right? They're, they're the things that make genres work. And you can play with genre math in the sense of certain genres are additive or subtractive to other genres. And, you know, like, what does it take tone-wise and and I'm a process junkie, again. So when I look at something prose, I start every single prose project that's longer than about 2,000 words by figuring out how I'm going to write sentences from scratch. You know, because a horror thing needs certain sentences of certain lengths and certain weights on certain words, whereas something funny needs a different value to it. And if you're writing something that's horror and funny, you get something completely different. And what is that shape like? And that you know, determines your tone and that's how, you know, you build up a thing until you don't have to worry. What you're writing now sounds like the genre you mean it to sound like. That seems like the kind of approach to writing only a former physicist slash computer science uh, nerd could do. You have to understand when I was six, I was at a playground with my father and I was like, I want to go play. And he told me to finish the story first. So... (laughs) I have literally been steeped in the mechanics of story my entire life. You're like, how can I get this done faster so I can go play? Well, it, it's just, again, like the, the mechanics of it, of storytelling are second nature to me. You know, I don't remember a time not knowing them. So I play with them on a deep, deep level because it makes it fun. So getting back to the original question, yeah, then, what I'm do sorry. you want to try? <laughs> no, that was a um, great, uh, great tangent. <laughs> I... I have approached like I've started working more like romance angle stuff into things I have never done a straight romance I've come kind of I'd argue that I came kind of close like a book ago but I think I'm the only person that would really argue that (laughs) everyone Um, else is like where's the romance oh no no they all see the romance they're just like what do you mean by straight romance that's and not in a queer sense because good lord there's like one straight character in that book um (laughs) but you know just just in the like oh I'm still genreing it up everywhere um, you know, like the historical romance thing fascinates me and I'm not, I am not good enough to deal with that. Historical romances are an incredible amount of work. Like, Just historical, getting your uh, history right? Historical romance fans know their stuff. Oh, dang. 
and you you know you're just like oh and they use this fork and they're like forks weren't in Ireland until 1947 and you're just like oh god okay I'm sorry you know so you really have to dig in on that um you know I I haven't done a straight mystery if only because again there are a lot of work and it's not that I'm against doing a lot of work but I need to find the exact right thing to make it worth it mm-hmm. and you know like I love like good American noir but again like a good mystery is hard um you know heist stuff is incredibly fun to watch and read and I love it to death and god help me that's so much work and I I see that all my answers right now is stuff I haven't done yet is because it's a lot of work and I'm putting it off uh right (laughs) terrible of me you need to put it on your to-do list as one of those I hope I fail items and then you'll miraculously write it well I have one novel left in my current deal and that will be well including the pandemic that'll be five novels in seven years and I am taking a break (laughs) it sounds Um, well deserved I feel like five novels in seven years is good for a full-time writer I mean that's five novels in seven years plus the day job plus editing clients plus um, a bunch of different comic work (laughs) So, yeah, I'm just like, I need to just take a break from prose and, and just focus on comic stuff for a while because it's been slipping my mind. Um, and then when I come back to it, I don't know. You know, I, I just, I kind of want to remove all of the genre tool set because it starts to feel like a crutch after a while. You know, it's that weird thing of, like, if you're writing, I don't know, like a, an action movie, it's one of those, like, you know, every 10 pages there should be an action scene. Mm. Um and after a while, like, it's a crutch. It moves you through a scene, right? Like, you don't have to worry. How am I going to resolve this? It, someone will enter. It's the old um, Philip Marlowe thing, right? You know, when you don't know what to do with a scene, someone enters with a gun. And as I, as I credit Raymond Chandler as his character's name by accident, because it's been that kind of day. Um, <laughs> and Chandler's right. Like, that is, that is the classic genre strategy. And I kind of want to try doing prose without that, like, that hatch. Okay. So you're making it more difficult for yourself then. Always, always. No. Every project I take on, because again, I'm not motivated by money. Every project I take on has to scare me completely because it has to be something I don't know how to do. It has to be something that just terrifies me that I can't pull off. Because otherwise I'm doing the thing I already did. Right. I, yeah, I get that. It's not making you a better writer or storyteller. Right. It's, it's not fun. There's not like new things to discover, new like techniques to figure out. It's just doing the thing I did already. And I've done that. So how many projects do you think you say no to every year? Not that many at this point. Um, you know, it, with things like comics, probably like one or two at this point a year. Um, just because it's been so long since I've had something out in comics, I'm not exactly in demand. You know, your name fades. Uh, Prose-wise, I've said no to a bunch of anthologies, weirdly enough, just because I don't have it in my head. Short stories are a lot of work. Um, And like I said, I used to write them constantly. But since shifting to novels, I've kind of stepped back from the short story thing, and I don't really like doing both at the same time because of the fact that I do try to rebuild how I write every time. Trying to do two prose concepts at once would break me. I get that. I feel like for most people, you just focus on the one project at a time, but it doesn't sound like you've worked that way in a long time, if ever. I used to. Um, way back when I started writing prose, I was just doing a thing and then I'd do the next thing. 
and then you know I started doing comics, and weirdly enough, I stopped being able to write prose for a couple of years in the middle of a novel, which is a terrible time to stop writing prose. Dang. But because comics are a completely different object, you think differently when you're working on them. So I actually had to, after a few years, reteach myself how to write prose. And then it stuck. Like I could write both then. Um, but yeah, then I could, you know, kind of juggle both because they're so different. It's when you're doing two things that are like really the same that you get in trouble. Do you start to like confuse styles and voice and stuff? I, I was working on two different comic uh, series at once one for a little bit. And I was actually co-writing both. And I was supposed to write the first draft on both scripts for the other team. And I wrote them, you know, and you write stuff to your artist, right? Like, you know, if I know, like, I'm working with, like, Nick Brokenshire on, on things like Once a Future Queen, I know what Nick wants. I know how he thinks. I know how he lays out a page. If I'm working with, like, Andrew Losk at the time, he thinks completely differently. I wrote the wrong script for the wrong artist. Because I wasn't, I was just too confused. I was working on two things at once. That took a while react? to clean up. Oh, they were just both, like, confused. Because they could tell, like, this isn't what this was supposed to look like. So they didn't, like, think, eh, he, he knows what he's doing. We're oh, just no. going to go for it. No. No, no one, no one who works with me is ever going to make the mistake of he knows what he's doing. Let's start there. <laughs> um, but also, again, like, it is, there is a trust process. And when you see something that's glaringly like, this is not right, you ask. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Doesn't make it to uh, the, the first draft or whatever. And then you're reading right. it later and being like, oh, now I see what I've done. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, since on our podcast, we, we kind of like to, to think about what, what writers and aspiring writers would have on their minds. What mm. kind of advice would you have for someone who's trying to break into any of the industries that you're in, basically? <laughs> Comics, prose? It, it's, it's, I, in terms of breaking it, it's all the same thing. First of all, the idea, well, my favorite interview ever started by somebody asking me to you know like how long have I been a professional like at writing and I asked how they would define professional because I've been selling stuff and working on things and you know have won awards for 15 years now and I was told that a professional meant that you were making the majority of your living from doing it and I was like okay so I'm still not a professional let's start there and, you know, we had a big laugh, but the rest of the interview was kind of colored by that. And I think it's still true. It, there is no breaking in. Breaking in doesn't exist. Like, there's no switch. There's no one throws a party. You don't get, like, a, a union card. No one <laughs> can no tell sag. you when you've broken in. Um, the, the best writer in the world who hasn't sold anything is still the best writer in the world. They just haven't gotten to share it with other people for money. It, there is no such thing as breaking in other than a definition you give yourself and you know be kind with that definition because it's a it's rough it is always going to be heartbreak around the corner and just you know do stuff because you like doing it don't get wrapped up in well i have to sell this much i have to do this much do you do you really you know like will the walls come tumbling down because if not it's fine um and weirdly, once you break in, the trick isn't actually breaking in, right? Anyone can sell a thing. I firmly believe that. Anyone can find a place to sell a thing, if that's your idea of breaking in. It's staying in. 
you know, if that's what you want to do, staying in any industry means you have to constantly be in production, constantly be selling the next thing, usually two things down the road from where you're working. And that kind of hustle is what will keep you in an industry or not. So, you know, again, like decide if it's worth it, because these days, I mean, you can get together with a buddy and put up a webcomic and get the same joy as seeing it on the stands. You can, you know, there are things like Wattpad and all this where you could put up your prose that no one ever has to pay you for it. You could print it yourself on Amazon. It doesn't matter. You know, what, why are you doing it? Like if you're, if you're creating in order to become rich and famous, please stop and start like juggling elephants because it'll be easier. There are like 4 million people out there who are doing this and, you know, 200 who are making a living at it at any given moment. So yeah, why are you doing it? Like what's driving you? What do you want to do with your life with it? What do you want to say? Is that best served by traditional publishing in any medium you want? Is it best served by self-publishing? Is it best served by just screaming it at the crows? You know, what, whatever that answer is for you is the road you need to follow. So, you know, publishing, making money, not a great goal in terms of creating something meaningful. I know people who have worked for like Marvel and DC on monthly books who still have day jobs because otherwise they couldn't pay the rent. Wow. People think that, you know, writers have a lot of money. This is not true. <laughs> you know, that's funny. I was just watching um, the movie Dr. Sleep last night. Oh. Have you seen it? No, but it's one of my biggest problems with Stephen King. Oh. <laughs> Everything he writes has a writer who like sold some short story for like a million dollars. Yes. And it's just like, no. That's what I was noticing. I'm like, we're watching this. And the one of the main families has this massive house with all this expensive looking art in it. And my boyfriend and I are trying to figure out what they do. We're like, oh, does he have a business? Is he an investor? And then we get to a scene where he whips out his laptop and his daughter asks how the book is going. And I'm like, what? Yeah, no, every Stephen King like thing somewhere, there's like a writer <laughs> who is rich and famous because it kind of happened to him. Yes. Um, so, you know, great. He struck the lottery. That's, that's awesome. I'm not saying his talent doesn't deserve it, but he struck the lottery. It doesn't mean anyone else in the world is. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's exactly. ridiculous. You don't normally get like a $100 million advance on a book in the 80s right. or whatever. The other thing to remember is that pay scales for things like short stories and novels hasn't gone up since the 70s. Really? Um, like comic, like, you know, per page rates and all that haven't gone up since the 70s. Cost of living kind of has. So <laughs> sure. your chances of making it in that sense as a writer have dipped thunderously. This might be a pretty niche question, but do you hmm. know why pay scales haven't gone up in decades? Because people, everyone on earth, okay, the basic human condition is to tell stories. We, I am firmly convinced we invented fire so we could tell stories longer into the night. Whether it was by, you know, inventing music and banging rocks or, you know, telling stories about this deer. Whatever it was, that's what humanity does. Everyone wants to at some level. And the internet showed us that everyone can write, right? Like you write emails, like you, you can write a sentence, you can write two sentences. Look, you're already writing a story. So on some level, everyone wants it because also a lot of writers are the people who are selling these stories that show writing as this kind of magical bullet, right? Like, like Stephen King, you write this thing, you become rich. Um, and so like, we kind of have this sin of making it look like it's this great idea. <laughs> 
and that it will somehow solve problems for you. And so everyone kind of wants that. Everyone wants to do that thing. They want to be creative. Turns out, if you pay people a, like the same money, if you pay people, you know, 200 bucks for a story in 1970, that's awesome. You pay people 200 bucks for a story now, a bunch of people won't accept it. But there's always somebody hungry around the corner because everyone wants to do it. There, there's one game in town, or at least that's what a lot of publishers still think. Gotcha. So, so why should they charge more if they can always get something? There's just too much supply, basically. Yeah. I, you look at like how they used to stock bookstores where it's, you know, there were books were changing out. If your book didn't succeed in two weeks, you were dead. That was the old that was the old method because they would change out the books because Barnes Noble wanted new releases. And if you sold like a book to your publisher and it had two weeks and then it was in the stacks and your career was basically done because you were a failure. Because there's always somebody around who's gonna take that next deal. You are meaningless to publishers. And that's terrible to say, but it's true. Like big publishing does not care about you. You are product. You're you're you know, you're the can of Coke that they're putting on the shelf. That's a very and, compelling argument for the small publisher. It is. And again, like you can still do big publishing stuff, like big press stuff if that's what you want. It's just just realize that that's the game you're gonna be playing. Mm-hmm. That's all I'm saying. Like I'm not saying don't play it. There's there's a lot of reward in it for a lot of people. You know, it's just understand the game you're playing before you sit down at the table. Wise words. Well, is there anything else that that we should mention about writing or uh, any more clues you want to give as to the, the kind of projects that we can expect from you in the next year? <laughs> Outside of the novel, I like I legally cannot say. Um, <laughs> oh, they, they would not like me for that. Um, but yeah, I do have, like I said, my, my last novel for a good long time, hopefully coming out sometime eventually once I write it. Uh, not a great no selling pressure. point. Um, but yeah, no, past that, like I said, I, I'm a process junkie. So Lord knows I, I can sit and talk about writing all day. That's part of my fun of being an editor is I get to do that. So again, it's, it's do the thing because you love it and because you can't not do it. But anything else is suspect. I like that. Well, uh, Adam P. Nave, thank you for talking with Between Lewis and Lovecraft. Uh, where can yeah, people you. find you if they if they want to see your work or connect with I, you online? I'm really easy to find pretty much anywhere you can go where I might possibly be. It's under Adam P. Nave. Perfect. AdamPNave.com on Twitter. It's Adam P. Nave. It's just It just works easier that way. Yes, very consistent. <laughs> yeah. Consistency is key in this There's case. There's something I can tell you. It's that the best place to hide is in your mind. In your mind.